0: Okay, I'll pray. Let's get going. Father in heaven, thank you for a new day. Thank you for uh, providing this venue for us. Uh, thank you for your grace to us, which is new every morning. We pray you bless us uh, in our time together. Form, uh, form friendships, form us together into one body. Uh, and allow us increasingly to, uh, to know you, appreciate you, and particularly in this series to uh, to see the blessings of worship. Uh, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, next week um, two, two things next week we're going to be in a different room down the corridor with more space so sorry it's a bit cramped this morning but we'll just have to find a way grab chairs from the main room pile round tables next week all the space um, welcome to Sunday School we and we use this slot from about half nine to about five past uh, ten for kind of seminar style teaching so it'll be a mixture of a bit of a bit from the front for me, uh, and a bit around um, the tables in small groups. I'm really keen, therefore, to, to start at half nine. This week's a bit chaotic, new venue, but I think in future weeks we'll just get going at half nine. So we've got wonderful new coffee machines, all that sort of stuff. Turn up anytime you like from nine onwards. Um, but we're going to kick off at, at half nine. Uh, this series, we're beginning a new series, thinking about worship, the blessings of worship. A few years ago, I was in a church in the USA, and um, at the end of the service, the, the minister said, oh, um, Pastor John, T., come, and, come and join me, come and join me at the front. So I went up to huge church, easily 2,000 people in the church, come up front. So I, I went and stood next to him up front, we're on this dais kind of at the front, loads of people looking at me, uh, uh, and then um, he said, oh, elders, come and join me. So the elders came up, and we were all in a row, but I was kind of shuffled into the middle. And then they started singing. The congregation, stuff they all started singing. No words on any screen. No words in the, whatever, the little kind of handout. I had no idea what they were singing. I think it was in Latin, I'm not sure. Um, but I was stood in front of 2,000 Americans, all of who knew what they were doing. I had no idea. And so I, I don't know if this is to my shame or not, I just started moving my lips, making no noise whatsoever, <laughs> hoping that they wouldn't realise that I had no idea what was going on. Um, you may have had some sort of experience like that. Maybe not quite that, you didn't look quite that dumb. else? But that, that experience of walking into a church service and thinking, this is a bit weird, or, or what's going on here, or, or why do they do that? And quite often we don't slow down and stop and explain. Uh, and so part of the point of this series is to do just that. Think a little bit about worship. What do we do? Why do we do it? But right at the beginning, it, it, it might have crossed some of your minds to ask the question, well, does it really matter? Does it really matter that much? are sort of different worship styles or different services or different ways of organising things on a Sunday? It's a bit like picking an ice cream flavour. You know, your favourite is pistachio. You know, your friends is toffee. Your kids love banana. doesn't really matter. Um, just choose what suits whoever. If you look down your sheet, I've got a quote there from, um, from John Calvin. Right in the sort of forefront of the Reformation... Um, who's, who's writing about the necessity of the Reformation? He's writing to the uh, to the emperor, and he says this: If it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains its truth. Okay, so if you want to know, says Calvin, how it is that, that Christianity exists among us and managed to maintain its place in society it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place the first place but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of christianity vis vis is a knowledge first of the mode in which god is duly worshipped and secondly the source from which salvation is to be obtained now again okay, 17th century language um 16th century language um it's A bit archaic. But basically, what is he saying? Well, just look at the last sentence. What what really matters, he says. First, the way in which God is worshipped. And secondly, the source from which salvation is obtained. Secondly, the gospel. So he says, Calvin, to the king, if you want to sort out Christianity, you've got to sort out, firstly, worship. And then secondly, the gospel. Now, I don't think I'd write that letter. I don't think any of us in the room would write that letter. We would say that what really matters, first of all, is sorting out the gospel. uh, And then way down the list, probably you might want to think about worship sometime. Calvin says, no, worship is central. And secondly, obviously, the gospel too. That's because Calvin knows, rightly, I think, he understands that worship makes and forms Christians. It's the central way we're discipled. So, if you have Roman Catholic worship, which was what he was kind of fighting against in his day, Calvin knows Roman Catholic worship forms Roman Catholic disciples. And Protestant worship or evangelical worship is going to form evangelical Protestants. And that is a very biblical insight. Um, have a look at Psalm 115. I've got a Bible. I'm afraid nowadays we're going to have to bring Bibles because we can't lug in uh, 100 Bibles every week. So, Psalm 115. I'll pick it up at verse uh, two. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols. So now he's talking about the other nations, the, the ones who don't worship Yahweh. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Okay, so they're just worshiping carved statues. Okay, you can carve a mouth, but the thing can't speak. But verse eight is the punch. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become what we worship. Now, we could have gone all over the Bible for that. But it's backing up Calvin's insight. How we worship and who we worship, obviously, together, shape who we become. And part of the point of this series is to try and I, I imagine that everyone in this room is agreed that we need to worship the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to spend any time arguing for that. Okay, that just means you need to be a Christian. But what I want to try and show you is that how we worship matters, not just who we worship. All right, I can't, if I put this on your sheets, it's going to be a total cheat. Um, in the whole of the Bible, the Father is only said to be seeking one thing. So, I, I don't, if I put, do I put it on your sheets yeah. I put the reference okay didn't put the answer what's the one the only time the father seeks what's he seeking anyone know what the verse is worship. worshippers yeah okay, so the son comes to seek and save the lost and Christians are told to you know seek all sorts of things but the only time we, we read about the father seeking anything it is worshippers worshippers will worship in spirit and truth So basically, worship matters, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, So let's think a little bit about what is worship? What is worship? Like many Bible words, you don't get a definition. That's often the case, isn't it? It's very rarely Jesus sits down and says, right, it's dictionary time. Justification means, worship means, and off he goes. Um, So here's a definition um, that I'm going to steal from someone else. But he draws it from basically watching what happens in the Bible when people worship. So let's see loads and loads of times when people worship, what happens? Okay, let's put together a kind of description. Um, I've put a summary, it's my summary on the top. Worship is engaging with God, the way he tells us. But I've stolen that from a guy called David Peterson, um, who was principal of the barber college I went to and wrote a book on worship called Engaging with God. Here's his longer definition. Worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. engagement with God on the terms that he proposes. In other words, he tells us how it's happened and in the way that he alone makes possible. It's God who makes worshipers, not us who sort of find God. So worship is about meeting with God in the right way, basically. It's what happens we do, what what we should do when we meet God. Now, straight away, there are two possible objections. And I want to deal with these before we do some discussion. Two possible objections. Um, the first one might strike some of you as odd, but um, stick with me because it won't strike everyone as odd. The first, first objection says this. Look, isn't all of life worship? So there's an argument that goes, in the Old Testament, worship was what about, about what happened when you, know, you went to the temple or the tabernacle, or the congregation gathered together. Um, but now in the New Covenant, worship is about all of life. Uh, and classically, people, when they want to um, propose this view. Turn to Romans 12, Romans 12, which uses worship language. Let me read it to you. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to tell you what worship is, Romans 12 says. It's preventing your whole, presenting your whole body as a living sacrifice. And as that is explained as it goes on, he doesn't talk at all about gathering together and singing and the Lord's Supper. And he goes on to talk about Christian discipleship. Um, so says this, uh, this person, all of life is now worship. Uh, it's no longer about what happens when we gather together. Um, I want to say that's half right or it's, it's kind of two quarters right. I know that's the same as a half. Um, it is true that in the New Testament, Romans 12 being an example, all of life can be described as worship. Sometimes the worship words, they're confusingly translated as serve sometimes or worship other times, but it's the same word underneath. Um, they can refer to all of life like they do in Romans 12. That is right. That's also true in the Old Testament, though. Okay, that's also true in the Old Testament. Um, So I'm going to skip through this a little bit so you don't get too bogged down. Take just one of the worship words used in the Old Testament. Um, Psalm 102. I think I put it on your sheet. Um, Blah, blah, blah. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. There's a worship word clearly being used about gathering together to worship, that kind of congregational worship. But exactly the same word is used in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It's the worship word. The same as the word in Psalm 102 about gathering together to worship. Uh, we won't look all these up. But if you read through Exodus and you have that back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, um, Moses will say in the ESV, he'll say something like, um, you must let us go that we might serve the Lord, or sometimes it's translated worship. Um, as you read through the different instances, sometimes the, the worship, serve word is being used of all of life. So Pharaoh says, No, you must stay here and serve, stroke, worship me by building the, the storerooms. Clearly, the Pharaoh is talking about all of life there. And at other times, the word will be used for, We need to go to Mount Sinai for three days and there worship the Lord. So to say to, imagine you're new, uh, uh, around the time of Jesus or Paul. And um, you've been a Jew and you've been converted and you're trusting Jesus. And you come along and you meet a new Gentile Christian. The Gentile says, oh, good news. Nowadays, all of life is worship. The Jew's going to say, what's new about that? We've known that for thousands of years. There's nothing new about the new covenant that we serve God or worship God with all our lives. Who has been doing that? And likewise, the worship or serve words in the New Testament, that can mean all of life sometimes, but at other times clearly don't. I think 1 Corinthians 14 I put on your sheet Falling on his face he will worship God okay, That is not talking about someone doing their job to the glory of God Acts 24 Thanks Jake <laughs> Checking the ass of me, bloody <laughs> um, Acts 24 Paul says I went up to worship in Jerusalem Or think about the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well uh, In John 4 uh, where they have a debate, and she, she says, "Look, I'm a Samaritan. We we, we worship on this mountain, um, and you Jews mount, worship on Mount Jerusalem, the temple. Which one's right?" And Jesus says, "Look, um, basically the Jews are right. It's, it's Jerusalem. But a time is coming when we'll worship in spirit and truth." He's not saying a time is coming when hey we'll worship God in all of life, because again, the Samaritan woman or any Jew listening will be like, "Yeah, I've done that forever." And the whole conversation is about where do we do this gathered worship. The move isn't from um, we used to do this gathered worship where we come together and worship and now it's just going to be an all-of-life thing. The move is from you used to have to go to a temple in Jerusalem and now you come to God through the Messiah in spirit and in truth. doesn't matter where you are. Uh, you can meet in a bar or pub or whatever in Leeds or a community centre or a shack or whatever. And perhaps most significantly, time and again when people meet Jesus... They worship. So the Magi, the wise men, when they meet Jesus, they bow and they worship. Or the end of Matthew's gospel, they worship. So when people say the worship language isn't used about this kind of narrow sense of worship in the New Testament, I I mean, I I don't really know what to say but it just blatantly is. So all of which is a way of saying the worship language in the Old and New Testament can mean all of life. But very regularly means the gathered, focused worship of the church. Basically what we would do on a, on a Sunday morning. And that is what we're focusing on. It's not the other thing isn't important. It's just that um, that's what this series is about. So there's one, word, one, one objection. Isn't all of life worship? The second one says, well, isn't God present everywhere? You, you said that, well, David Peterson said that it's engaging with God. It's how we rightly respond when we come into his presence. Isn't God everywhere? Um, Without looking down and reading ahead, just round tables, what would you say to somebody who said, well, there can't be anything special about kind of meeting God when we gather together, because God is everywhere. So he can't be any more present when we worship. Just have a couple of minutes round tables, what, what would you say? If you agree with it, you can argue for it. <laughs> and if you disagree, you can argue against. There can't be any special presence of God when we worship, because God is everywhere. Okay, I'm going to interrupt because I want to get you doing a longer discussion in a moment. Um, let, let's have a bit of feedback. What, what might you say if someone says, no, we're always in God's presence, so there can't be anything special about coming to him? What? Let's have some feedback. What do you say? <coughs> you were all talking. Someone's got an answer. Someone's got an answer. I'm sort of picking on people. You get a feeling of belonging if you're part of like everyone or we'll, we'll together Okay. you feel like you're not alone and you, you think you can be encouraged as but... well. Okay, so there's certainly going to be corporate blessings of what happens when you come together. So if you're trying to live on your own, that'd be very hard. Yeah, That's true. Anything on the presence of God? It's he's everywhere, so. Yep. Okay, that's big. So Matthew eighteen, when two or more gather together, um, Jesus says that you know then I will be there. And the disciples don't say, well, yeah, Jesus, because you're everywhere. Um, It just makes Jesus' statement redundant. In fact, you could do that with loads of verses, couldn't you? Um, Matthew twenty eight. It's not about worship, but just in general, you know, surely, says Jesus, surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. Disciples don't go, oh yeah, you're omnipresent. You know, tell us something we don't know. No, it's a special presence. Uh, When you become a Christian, we often talk about Christ comes and dwells in your heart. We don't say, well, yeah, he was there already because he's omnipresent. No, there are different senses of God's presence in the Bible. It's true that in general God is omnipresent, but that's not kind of the end of the discussion. There are different ways um, God is present. He is present, for example, um, in heaven um, to the saints who've died and gone ahead, to Christians who've died and gone ahead. He is present to them in a much more direct way than he is to us now. There's mystery there. I can't explain it all. But it's not just kind of binary, either he is or isn't there. Like, I am in this room, therefore I am not outside. That's because I'm a human being. I've only got one way of being present. It's not like that with God. I put down there on, um, on the sheet uh, a passage from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay, since we can, you know, we're safe to come to God because Jesus died for us, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain... That is, through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What's he talking about? If you, if, if you can say back to the guy in Hebrews, well, I'm already near because I'm, you know, God's everywhere, then it makes no sense. But the, notice, the author of Hebrews, there is, there is a special sense in which you can draw near to God. Uh, and not the only one, but one of the prime ways is when we gather uh, in worship. He promises to be with us in a particular way. Um, This guy called John Frame has got an illustration of this, which I I find helpful, so I'll share with you. Uh, He says, look, it's totally right that in one sense all Christians are constantly in God's presence. In one way, everybody is because he's omnipresent. But it's also true that Christians, we're constantly with the Lord. He dwells in our hearts. And Paul says, you know, we're already sat in the heavenly realms. That is true. Frame says, look, imagine that you're a servant in the palace. You're in Buckingham Palace. You're a servant of uh, King Charles. Um, In one sense, you're always in his presence. It's his palace. You're allowed in. You're you're always in his presence. But every now and again, he walks into the room where you are, and you all stop and you, you know, you bow or whatever you do when a king comes into the room. And you're sort of you're especially in his presence, as it were. Frame says it's a bit like that with worship because of Christ's promises, God's promises that we'll see in the future that He draws near when we gather he's with us by his word for example or we have communion with him participation with him at the Lord's Supper the <laughs> verse we had quoted earlier when two or more gathered together those sort of things um, then yeah, we are kind of especially uh, present with him I, I think there is a bit of a danger of denying that um, I'm not going to talk about that because I'm going to get you to talk about it in a moment um, but if we if we, if we don't think that as we come to church, we're coming primarily to worship, i.e. to engage with God, to meet with God, then that will, I think, have a, um, a negative effect on our discipleship, on our Christian lives. But you're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, very quickly, to, to wrap up for me, just t- two questions. How can we worship and who can worship? The Bible, in a way, is a story about worship. It begins in a worship sanctuary. So the Garden of Eden is described in ways that are meant to make us think. It's a bit like a temple, a place where God and man meet. Uh, So God walks in the garden. He's present with his people. There is that really direct presence, at least from time to time. Um, The way it's set up, um, when they later build the temple, it's deliberately meant to remind us of Eden. So the temple is full of trees because Eden was full of trees. Um, Eden has its exit or entrance on the east and when they get driven out they're driven out to the east the tabernacle always has to be set up with the entrance on the east um, the garden of Eden is, has the cherubim with the flaming swords guarding the entrance and so cherubim are sewn into the um, the, the sort of gateway tent thing um, of the tabernacle and so the idea was that God and man would constantly be there um, able, man able to worship it goes wrong, we're driven out And the problem from then onwards is we can't get back in. Uh, There is the the flaming sword. Fire and sword bars us from God's presence. They can't get back in um, to paradise. Uh, And as the story of the Old Testament goes on, this is a real problem. God is no longer present. And even if we were we can't get near. And so the next book of the Bible, Exodus, solves the problem of God being present again. It ends, if you remember the book of Exodus... Um, Ends with the building of the tabernacle. It's the kind of bit of the book we don't bother reading because we're bored about all the descriptions. But actually, it's the high point of the book. Just look right at the end of the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible, chapter 40, right at the end. Exodus 40 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect. The tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Okay, the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Those are actually two different words, tabernacle and tent of meeting. But the tabernacle is, is, is literally a dwelling place. And the tent of meeting is a meeting place. And so the, God says that this one thing, gives it two names, a tabernacle, okay, a dwelling place and a meeting place. Set it all up. So they set it all up. What happens? Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. So by the end of Exodus, God has come near. He's built this dwelling place that's meant to be a tent of meeting, but no one can get in. Even Moses can't get in. And so what happens? Well, the very next book, Leviticus, the Lord, beginning of Leviticus, 1... The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when any of you you brings an offering, literally near bringing to the Lord, you shall bring your offering. And he goes on to explain the sacrifices. I'm dwelling with you, God says at the end of Exodus, but you can't get near. So here is a whole book, Leviticus, about how my dwelling place can become a meeting place. It's going to be through sacrifice. And the sacrifices... What happens to the sacrifice is two things. They're killed and then they're burnt. Sword and then fire. That's what allows you back into the presence of God. Okay, it's like the, the animal goes through the cherubim in your place, dies, burnt, and therefore you're allowed to approach. And it's all a picture, obviously, of what Jesus is going to come to do when he turns up thousands of years later. That's exactly what happens. He goes under the fiery judgment of God. He comes under the sword of God's judgment in order to open the way back uh, to God, uh, back to heaven. So Psalm 22, which he quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first half of that Psalm gives this description of the horrors of the crucifixion. But at verse 22, it it, it turns, it changes. Uh, And from... um, Describing the, the suffering of christ it moves to his, his glory his resurrection let me just look up verse 22 psalm 22 verse 22 halfway through the psalm uh, save me from the mouth of the lion and then verse 22 i will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation i will praise you or i'll worship you So even the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross, as I go under the fiery judgment of God, it's so that I will come out the other side and lead my people in worship. That's the point. That's the point of the gospel. It's not just to get you um, safe so the fire doesn't hurt you, the fire of judgment. It's to bring you back so that you can worship God. And Hebrews picks up that verse and says, this is what Jesus is doing. He leads the congregation, the church, in worship when you gather together. So the reason we can worship is because of Christ, because of the gospel. There's no other way to God other than through the gospel. I know you know that. And that also means, therefore, that the only people who can worship are those who come in the name of Christ, who put their trust in Christ. Worship is for the church, not for the world. Therefore, what we do on a Sunday morning, it's not an evangelistic event. And you don't plan it thinking, what would work best for people who who don't trust God? That's not how you plan it. Because it's not primarily an evangelistic event. Now, Paul does say that if unbelievers come in, that's a great thing. And in one Corinthians 14, he gives an example of someone coming, someone coming into the worship service being so struck by it that they fall down to worship. So, although it's not an evangelistic event, as in you're not trying to kind of get rid of anything that might offend or think what would work best for people in Leeds, or um, I used to go on church planning courses and. and some people get themselves so screwed up. Like, we've got to plant a church that will exactly fit the people here, and, it, and it's like, well, I'm not sh- like, yes, in terms of evangelic events, but not in terms of Sunday morning. Sunday morning, you've got to do what God tells you to do. It's what everyone's done for 2,000 years. Just do that. Church planting is easier than you think it is. Um, in some ways, very hard in other ways. It is the best thing to bring non Christians to. And as a bit of a side note, everything's so weird now. We're so weird. You're so weird now. I'm afraid. um, for most people it's much more normal to be invited to a church service than um, a a quiz night where at the end randomly your minister pops up to tell you about Jesus (laughs) Uh, and that's a bit like alright what was that about Um, that's sort of you know now we might do those you know Nick's going to pick some ideas we do those brilliant ideas too but people know what a service is roughly okay we're going to sing some hymns someone's going to say some prayers probably some guy's going to talk with us Alright, I kind of get that. Um, Yeah, that's a bit of an aside. Anyway, (laughs) Um, the key thing is worship is the gathering of God's people in in the name of Christ. Um, It's it's, it's for the church because God is active. So, uh, back round tables, just for five or six minutes as we finish off. Um, I put three questions uh, on there that you can read through. just that second one, I realise might be confusing. Why is it important to remember that God is the main actor in worship, not us? Actor, I don't mean pretender, as in Hollywood actor. I mean the person acting. Okay, His initiative. He's the main one at work in worship, not us. Over to you.